Wealth is defined by GDP per capita. And GDP means you make stuff. If you build a building and tear it down 50 years and build another building, that's good for the GDP. If you have two cars instead of one car, if you have two houses instead of one house, all good for the GDP. And if there's a disaster and you have to do disaster relief and build up something, guess what? The GDP increases. So what's wrong with a few disasters? I mean, this is crazy. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Welcome, everyone. <clears throat> Before we begin, uh, I do want to acknowledge uh, that we are on Gadigal land. Uh, this is the land of Gadigal of the Eora Nation. Uh, it is on their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. It's on their ancestral lands where there has been gathering and learning and exchanging for tens of thousands of years. Uh, and it's something uh, we honor and respect. Um, I'm David Schlossberg. I am the director of the Sydney Environment Institute, which is a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research. Uh, today, we will hear from Nobel Prize uh, laureate and former US Secretary of Energy, uh, Professor Stephen Chu, as he discusses the potential paths to a sustainable future. Thank you very much for the lovely introduction. Uh, so without further ado, I just want to mush on. Uh, as noted before, there uh, are becoming more important apparent things that the climate is changing. We see increased heat floods, wave, heat waves, floods, forest fires, droughts, water shortages, rising seas. Um, this is uh, a map of the water stress levels uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, and when there's water stress, um, and when I mean by water stress is even though the climate as the climate changes and warms up, you have more precipitation, but sometimes it doesn't come at the right time, the right place. And especially in regions fed by mountains, uh, the snows may melt earlier than expected, and that's a large part of a reservoir. Um, these stresses um, add to other stresses, uh, and uh, they're beginning to create climate refugees. We have refugees from, you know, gangsters, this, that, the other thing, but um, uh, the climate refugees problem is going to increase. And we've already seen what the world has done, what has happened to the world with maybe 10 million refugees. Uh, and it's actually changed the political discourse in many places around the country. So if it's 10 or 20 million, just multiply that by 10, and all of a sudden things get shaken up. Uh, and so that's something to take note of. How are we doing? Um, well, these are predictions. Uh, this was made in 2000, about 2010, uh, of what the predictions might be. Uh, and at present time, these are the scenarios. If we take all the pledges uh, that have been made already, we're on a path, according to the climate modelers, of being around three degrees centigrade. Uh, so people aren't really talking about one and a half degrees centigrade anymore. Uh, I personally think we may reach 600 parts per million and, uh, and perhaps a three degree increase. So as a matter of history, if you look back at the time, uh, uh, the last warm interglacial period, uh, about 120,000 years ago, 
the Earth was about two and a half degrees warmer, and then two and a half degrees warmer than before the Industrial Revolution. So we're talking about one and a, one and a quarter degrees from where about 1.2 degrees warmer today. Sea level was six to nine meters higher. That's not a climate model. That's fossil record. Uh, you look at the uh, fossilized records of uh, creatures that lived on land and sea all around the world because land rises and subsides, so you have to take an average. <clears throat> and so that's the sort of the state of events if you're averaging over thousands of years. A sea level is not going to rise. It probably won't rise a meter this year, this century. Um, but it's in uh, following centuries where it, it's going to happen. Uh, another thing to remind all of you is that um, you all have had experience. Uh, we have ice in a glass of water. As long as the ice is there, the water stays cold. And so we have a similar situation. The bottoms of the seas are quite cold, very close to um, one or two degrees centigrade. Very slow mixing of the top surface with the, uh, the bottoms of the oceans, uh, two kilometers and deeper. And so as long as the oceans remain cold and you're warming up the oceans, the full impact of what is happening because of the greenhouse gas, uh, uh, increased greenhouse gases are simple. Energy in, average over solar cycles, roughly constant. Energy out, less, but you're warming up the oceans. And it takes about 50 years, maybe longer, uh, uh, to actually come to an equilibrium. So it's very much like cigarette smoking. You don't get cancer or lung uh, heart disease in your first pack of cigarettes and your first decade of smoking. It's a long cumulative process. You're building up mutations. And uh, you know, I've had friends who smoked when they were in their 20s and 30s, stopped smoking, die of lung cancer in their 70s. Uh, because you started the bowl rolling. And so similarly, what we've done already to the environment is not going to be apparent for 50 or longer years. The good news is you can reverse this, unlike the mutations in cigarette smoking. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, there is some good news. The cost of renewable energy um, amortized over the cost of the, you know, the lifetime it, has really come down precipitously. This is a graph from 1983 to 2021, and you see concentrated soil, offshore wind, solar photovoltaic, onshore wind. Um, $5 a kilowatt hour is some average we typically see in the United States as the wholesale price of electricity. So what is happening is the cost of electricity with renewable energy is becoming competitive with wholesale costs. But this is only part of the story, because when you're 10 or 20 or 30 percent renewable energy, you have the standard systems there already as backup. Uh, but when you're 50, 80 percent uh, renewable energy that you can't turn on and off at will, then the real cost of the energy, the electricity, would include the backup generation capacity, energy storage, and hence transmission distribution systems. All right. So uh, there's a few other things to keep in mind. This electricity, um, the sun and wind do what they do, uh, not according to what we want. But we also uh, have to manage these intermittent generations of energy. 
And there's a thing in physics, if you have a big generator that's spinning, uh, and you, it's spinning very steadily, then that automatically stabilizes the electricity generation. Um, any changes, uh, there's a thing called Lenz's law that poked back and it stabilizes the system. When you have wind, which is a big generator, but it's intermittent, and especially solar, you don't have this anymore. So you need to stabilize the energy system. And so that's what we mean by this lack of spinning generators. Uh, the increased electrification and transportation, like industrial processes, space heating, means that, yes, you can get uh, these decarbonize these processes, but you're depending more and more on a single source of energy, namely electrical energy, rather than the distributed forms. And so uh, that's... Um, some of the robustness of a modern uh, developed country's energy supply is, is now at risk. Finally, uh, no matter how good your resources are, there will be a time where you need to have a compact source of energy where their battery storage is just not practical. Uh, wind can stop blowing for a week or two. And, um, and so in these turn-on sources of electricity, uh, there's cold natural gas or fission nuclear energy. And so that, those are the choices. Um, coal, uh, at least in the United States, is uh, being phased out because it's not only a carbon emitter, it's a mercury, soot, nitrous oxide, uh, SOx emitter, things like that. And, but you still have natural gas, which is also a carbon emitter, or fission energy. Now, fission energy is a... Uh, uh, people are beginning to look at it, even people who are against nuclear energy are beginning to have another look. Uh, this is an example of a 50 megawatt um, design reactor from a U.S. company called NuScale. And this whole thing is, is the reactor, the containment vessel, everything it can be put on a flatbed truck and shipped, made in a factory. Also, it can be made essentially so that the possibility of it melting down and having contamination goes very, very low compared to conventional reactors. Uh, even if you lose your electricity supply, your water supply, everything, the heat inertia of this is so large you won't melt it down. So uh, that's one thing. The other thing to keep in mind is if you look at nuclear energy as a backup source of energy, um, when the wind isn't uh, blowing, the sun's not shining, something like that. Uh, in natural gas generators, you use these emergency generators maybe 5% of the time. And yet they're economical. Why? Because we have real-time pricing in the United States. And so when there's an energy shortage, these standby generators kick on. They generate electricity. Uh, but if they're only used 5% of the time, how can they make money? Well. Uh, they can charge hundreds of times more for the energy during that time. So if you can think of a nuclear reactor as charging hundreds of times more energy part of this time, and the rest of the time you use it to make hydrogen or desalinate, all of a sudden you use this uh, all the time, which you have to because of high capital expenses. Uh, and that, if you can mass produce these so that you don't have construction delays, it could actually give economic hope for a new generation. Um, what else? Well, you've heard headlines about fusion, especially in the United States, laser fusion. And um, let's say the uh, international project in the south of France, ITER, 
is about uh, two and a half decades behind schedule and about three times over budget. Um, and laser fusion has technical issues. I'm good friends with the scientists who actually made it happen over 11 years. And here's a view of when this could become commercially viable is for sure not before 25 years or even 35 years, uh, but it also could be never. Uh, why never? Because uh, the, of the CapEx and the risks. Even if the countries band together and build the first couple, uh, these fusion plants would be tens of billions of dollars. A nuclear power plant, one gigawatt, is about $10 billion. And if it's only two years late, it creates a financial hole that utility companies can't pull out of. So if you think of an even riskier technology that's even factors are two or more higher, this is an issue. That there are really technical unsolved problems. I do believe ITER will actually get fusion. I, uh, now, the laser fusion has bro uh, broken even in the sense, or more than broken even in the sense, that the laser energy into this pellet uh, is less than the amount of uh, kinetic energy you get out of the neutrons. Uh, the laser is about 10 minus 4 efficient. Um, but if, even if the laser is 20% efficient, uh, it would take something for it to make enough energy to power itself. Uh, and that's decades away. And similar with ITER. So I just want to say, if you look at the dangers of various sources of energy, dangers in when you burn coal, brown coal, coal, oil, biomass, anything, it's the particular matter of the pollutants. Uh, these are the deaths per unit of uh, energy created. And so uh, nuclear is down there. It's between wind and solar in terms of safety. These are the number of people who die in nuclear, including Chernobyl. Uh, and uh, Fukushima estimated maybe 200 premature cancer deaths. No one died in Fukushima uh, meltdown. Uh, hundreds, if not thousands, died in Chernobyl. But um, so uh, it's about 1,000 times safer than burning coal, 100 times safer than burning uh, wood nuclear. So um, the other thing is, what do you do with the nuclear waste? And there's uh, a bit of a technological development going here. It's very exciting. Uh, you can do remote borehole drilling. Uh, one of Elon Musk's company is called the Boring Company. It's kind of a pun. <laughs> Uh, but he so far reduced boring for tunnels for transportation by a factor of 10. Uh, and it can go deeper than that. Um, when you want to drill holes um, somewhere between the size for oil and gas exploration to uh, transportation, uh, you need something about the radius of half a car, uh, the width of half a car. Remote drilling means you uh, can reduce costs dramatically because you don't have to have the environment safe for people. It's like unmanned exploration of space versus uh, putting humans in space. And so this should also mean a lot of uh, repositories that were deemed unaccessible could be accessible for safe uh, storage of spent fuel. OK, let's move on to. Uh, how do you uh, decrease the risks of climate change? Well, you've got to decrease greenhouse gas emissions. 
This is a summary taken from uh, some IPCC uh, data of, of roughly you know, what is industry, energy supplies, buildings, transportation. This is worldwide. And so when you hear of pledges that go to zero greenhouse gas emissions everywhere, that means it also means the elimination of emissions from steel, concrete, plastics, chemicals, textiles. It means elimination of greenhouse gas emissions for the entire food supply chain. And it means we have to get into a mentality that's not recycle, but to uh, use ones and throw away, or use a bottle once and recycle the glass. Uh, but for example, if I take this and drink water out of this, you don't throw away this glass, you wash it. <laughs> And so, lo and behold, this is much more economical. You just wash the glass. Appliances could be made repairable. The shelves of building could last for hundreds of years and not be torn down in 50 years. Most of the building is not recyclable, uh, just the seal. The glass, the concrete, all the materials in it are not recyclable. And so the goal is to reuse, not recycle. We have examples in the United States of iconic buildings being refurbished, going into their 100 plus years, the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building, Chicago Mercantile Market. These are when they were built. Uh, they've been refurbished to have another 100 year lifetime they've, with modern HVAC systems, things like that. But nowadays, we can build a building that can modernize the heating, ventilation, cooling, the utilities by having service quarters built in, but the outer structure can be there for hundreds of years. And so we should begin to think of things like that. Um, you know, London has 500-year wood buildings that are still part of old London. Uh, and that's wood uh, that's carbon sequestered for 500 years uh, and longer. And people are beginning to realize you can build structures, uh, 5, 10, 20-story high structures, uh, who the structural materials aren't steel and concrete, they're wood. And um, these are examples of this. Most buildings are not 20 stories tall. They're five or less. And so if this becomes widespread, they could become less expensive than steel and concrete. Um, concrete is really inexpensive. But uh, uh, when this is living for a couple hundred years, it's carbon sequestered for a couple hundred years. So in managed forest for timber, for wood, you're capturing carbon dioxide, so it's a form of carbon capture. Let me talk about energy storage. So if you want uh, to go as high renewable as possible in California, where 70% electricity is carbon-free, 10% is nuclear, the rest is wind, solar, hydro, and geothermal. Uh, it's been estimated uh, by these authors uh, who are former RPE uh, members in the Department of Energy um, when I was there, that um, we would need about 2,000 times more energy storage than we currently have in the United States uh, to last three days. Three days doesn't seem like a long time, but three days actually gets you to 80% completely intermittent renewables. Uh, so that's the United States because we have a lot of wind and solar and four time zones. Uh, so we're really blessed. But if you want to compete with natural gas generating plants as peaking plants, uh, the cost has to decrease by a factor of 10 to 20 
from what it is today. And so that's a problem. We will get a factor of two for sure, but a factor of 20, uh, not so sure. Um, and so that's a great challenge. And the challenge of getting utility-scale batteries uh, at these costs is really uh, very important. This is a picture of one of my favorite batteries. And here's how it works when the wind blows. Uh, you do use the energy. Uh, in this case, to pump water out of the ground, you need the water, you open the valve. And it turns out pump storage, pumping water from one height to another, is about 95% of all the electricity storage we have today. So here's where we are 2021 in terms of pumped hydro storage. So this means you have a dam, you have water in a reservoir, and you have something below, a little holding pond or whatever. And if you have excess wind or solar, you just pump it up the hill. And then when you want to get your energy back, you generate down the hill. Remarkably efficient, roughly uh, for 50 meter height, 80% efficient. It's as efficient as a vanadium flow battery. Um, so China leads the world, followed by the United States, Japan, Germany. And so the United States uh, last year uh, said, okay, there have been applications for more pump storage that would uh, increase the amount of pump storage in the United States by 1.9. Let me also say, in terms of costs, if you have an existing dam and you do it right, pump storage is cheaper by far. If you have to build a dam, it's a different matter because of the regulatory issues and everything else. Okay. But if you have existing dams, it is very inexpensive and known technology. So that's where the United States will be maybe in a decade or two. What about China? Well, this is what they want to do. It goes clear across the room. Uh, they have 34 gigawatts of power capacity. Uh, energy and power are different. Uh, power means if the sun goes down and all of a sudden you need a lot of air conditioning, you don't only have solar, you need power. Energy means uh, the sun isn't shining for several days, you need energy. And so China wants to go from 34 to 270 gigawatts, uh, seven and a half times increase. That's a pretty serious investment. Um, and, um, but not everybody has good mountains and existing dams, and it will still require a, a much better long-distance transmission distribution system. So you're also thinking of more local forms of energy storage, and the energy storage options in terms of uh, energy on the x-axis, and how many days would this last on the y-axis, uh, you, you have batteries, you have flywheels. Flywheels are big inertia things that are taking the place of the spinning reserves of the coal and gas generators uh, for short-term voltage stabilization. Uh, PHS is pumped hydro storage, but people are now beginning to look at chemical storage of certain types, notably hydrogen and synthetic methane. Methane made from CO2, uh, clean energy, and um, water. So there are a couple of colors. There's more colors than this. We call uh, gray hydrogen, hydrogen which you get out of natural gas. Uh, you can, there's a process where you can turn that natural gas into the end products are hydrogen and carbon dioxide, and then you vent the carbon dioxide. So in terms of uh, being uh, less carbon intensive in terms of energy, if you run um, 
uh, a hydrogen battery car uh, off of gray hydrogen, it's no better than if you ran in gasoline. Uh, it, the pollutants are much better, uh, but uh, in terms of CO2, no. Then there's blue hydrogen. You take the uh, uh, steam methane reforming process, you capture the carbon dioxide you sequestered for thousands of years or tens or forever, uh, and uh, that's good. Uh, uh, I do believe it's possible to sequester carbon dioxide for very, very long periods of time safely. Uh, but what we found is that when you're actually drilling for uh, natural gas, uh, you're disturbing the ground, and these natural gas sites actually begin to leak more uh, natural gas. They will leak natural gas anyway if you didn't do anything. That's how oil was discovered in Pennsylvania. It was seeping out of the ground. If you go to the Gulf of Mexico, there are little bubbles of hydrogen, uh, natural gas rather, <laughs> seeping out of the floor. So there's always a little seepage, but when you start drilling, you increase this. And we discovered by remote laser sensing that uh, the hydrogen seepage is significant. It's a couple percent of the amount you come out, uh, that you bring out. And so since methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas, that's an issue. Green hydrogen, uh, not a problem except cost. Uh, so you eliminate the cost, the reduction of capital expense of the electrolyzers, things like that. Uh, right now, a lot of the electrolyzers are um, uh, fuel cells run backward, and there's progress being made in what are called solid oxide fuel cells that now are getting to 88% efficiency, lower heating value for the technical people in the room. So you run it forward. If you have hydrogen, you make electricity. Uh, if you have electricity, you make hydrogen and oxygen. And uh, so if this can be made inexpensively and reliably, um, uh, and so these are now being installed at pilot plant uh, uh, scale today in California. Problem, hydrogen is very leaky, much more leaky than natural gas. It makes metals brittle, steels brittle. Um, other problem, you can't, hydrogen is a symmetric molecule and so it doesn't have any direct laser absorption line. And so the ways you can detect hydrogen, the traditional way is through mass spectroscopy, which is you ionize the ion in a vacuum and bend it in a magnetic field. You can tell hydrogen from helium from other gases. Uh, so it means no remote sensing. You can make those things more compact, but no remote sensing. And remote sensing is very important, especially if you thinking of a hydrogen pipeline. There is a, a Raman scattering line, a very high pulse intense laser. If you shoot it in, you can get a Raman shifted peak of hydrogen, but uh, that has to be made inexpensive and uh, shown that it can be for remote sensing so you can actually see what's going on. So that's a problem. Why is it a problem? If hydrogen leaks out, it's already it's been verified now that it stabilizes methane in the atmosphere. And so it's effectively like a greenhouse gas. And so if you're leaking 1% of the hydrogen people are talking about using, it would be disastrous. Okay, so you can't leak, US natural gas pipeline leaks about one or 2% of the natural gas, even though it's easy to catch the natural gas. Uh, the utility companies don't bother because they used to charge their customers for the hydrogen that leaks out. 
that law has recently changed, and remarkably, they, they're less leaky. <laughs> but when I was Secretary of Energy, <laughs> they could put it on the customer's bill. Okay, nevertheless, hydrogen is viewed as something uh, in a very positive way. It, you can use it to do reduction in steel making, and it could be the precursors for plastics, chemicals, fertilizers. CO and hydrogen are, would be the instant, if you can get it very inexpensive, they would be the feedstock for syngas, which means you can make any fuel you want, including aviation fuel, and it's all about money. And so those are the things that we face. Okay, let's talk about the batteries you know some more about, and those batteries for your cell phone, your computers, your cars especially. So on this graph is energy density per unit weight on the x-axis, energy density per unit volume on the y-axis. Uh, the Tesla S1 battery is over here. Uh, within a decade, I think the energy density per volume per weight will be up here. Um, I have some confidence because I'm on the board of a battery company. I do do battery research. And these higher energy densities and volumes are being prototype tested now. It will take five years for them to get into a car because of safety issues. You just they have to be very well tested. Uh, so that's good news. Uh, they're becoming more compact. If you double the energy per unit weight, it means you're lugging a lot around a lot less dead weight. So the capacity of your battery can go down. And uh, so what about the cost? Well. This is the cost of batteries. It's on a log scale on the um, y-axis. And on the x-axis, it's the amount of batteries delivered, put into production, also on a log scale. The log on the x-axis of cost, the log on the y-axis, on the x-axis of things delivered on the y-axis of cost is something called a learning curve. For reasons, there's no physical principle for this, but as soon as technology gets going, it begins to follow a learning curve. You double the amount of things you ship, the cost goes down by a certain fraction, double again, it goes down by that same fraction. It continues to happen for decades. And um, this is the learning curve costs in batteries. And so right now, it, uh, if you look on the right-hand side, uh, once you're in uh, EV land of S1s and S3s, uh, all of a sudden, you're producing a lot of batteries. You establish a learning curve. And so in year 2000, the cost per battery was outrageous, $2,000 a kilowatt hour. Uh, 20 years, it dropped by a factor of 20. Uh, another 10 years, at least a factor of two more. So very exciting. Um, so at these costs, now, the manufacturers, the OEM manufacturers like uh, GM, are paying about a $90 a kilowatt hour, and they're setting dates at a certain date. We're only going to pay $85. We're only going to pay $80. And so, so they're, they're looking at the learning curve, and they said, this is how much we're going to pay. You guys decide how you're going to make it. And so it's, it's a very real uh, progress. Um, but there's something else that can break a learning curve. What if you run out of the key materials? Uh, cobalt and manganese are key materials in today's EV batteries, and as you get more and more EVs on the road, you begin to run out. And what to do? Well, they're already beginning to shift to iron phosphate, even though the iron phosphate is lower energy density. 
it's a lot cheaper. It's safer, but cheaper. So half the EVs now are iron phosphate in the last two years. Uh, what about lithium? Uh, well, lithium uh, comes in special places, Australia being one of them. Um, and, uh, but what can you do about that? And it turns out uh, that lithium is about as abundant in the Earth's crust as nitrogen. There's a lot of it, but it's in dilute form. And the methods of getting lithium out are very polluting, either from ore or from uh, salty water. Uh, the major way is to pump salt water out of the ground. You lift it up to the ground and make these big lakes. Um, you evaporate all this. The lithium fraction in these very salty waters are maybe 1,000 to 1 lithium to uh, sodium to lithium. Uh, and in seawater, it's 2,000 to 1 sodium to lithium. And so uh, we think it's possible, and this is a paper uh, written by Chong Lu, who was co-directed by Yi Sui and myself at, when she was a postdoc at Stanford, now assistant professor at University of Chicago, uh, and developing methods to get lithium out of seawater. And, um, and if this is practical, then lithium doesn't become a problem anymore, if you can deliver at the cost of lithium today. Um, and her latest paper in 2001 at the University of Chicago, she can start with lithium seawater, one lithium ion per 20,000 sodium ions. And after a single pass through iron phosphate and coming out, he gets uh, eight times more lithium than sodium. And so if this thing can be made at high volume, practical, it's already there. We're, in my own group, looking at uh, uh, different ways of doing this. But so, but I think the possibility of getting lithium out of seawater is good. Um, ideally, um, I already mentioned the iron cathode, uh, iron phosphate being lower energy density than the cobalt oxide. The cobalt oxide in your cell phone, which is uh, what uh, was awarded Nobel Prize for by John Goodenough, he identified a lot of the compounds, iron phosphate, cobalt oxide, others. Cobalt oxide still remains the king. It was the first uh, rechargeable uh, Sony computer battery. It's still the one in your cell phone, but you, it's got too much cobalt, it's too expensive, and so the EV batteries are a few percent cobalt. Uh, ideally, you would want to use sulfur because in principle, sulfur can be even higher energy density, and on the other, the anode side, instead of lithium and carbon, if you use a whole metal electrode, it could even be better. But the problem is when you make a battery like this, if you try to recharge too fast, you make these dendrites that form and they, uh, they actually uh, go to the other side and short out the battery. So these surface irre irregularities in this so-called solid electrolyte interface, uh, the lithium is very reactive chemically and so it forms this self-protecting layer, but if it's a pure metal, it, uh, it shorts. And so that was another part of the Nobel Prize, putting lithium in graphite. Um, so we've been looking around for a barrier that's porous to lithium ions, but is physically very strong. And so if you grow this barrier onto this, uh, the lithium can go through the barrier, but it's so strong that it prevents dendrites from forming. Uh, it's a strategy in different forms uh, I've been looking at for the last decade or two, decade for sure. Uh, 
And what we found is there's uh, a two-dimensional material called hexagonal boron nitride. It's like graphene, which is um, carbon atoms, um, except you replace them with boron nitrogen. And uh, if you radiation damage it, we found it likes to pass lithium quite nicely, but it's pretty strong. And this is what happens uh, to this battery uh, of a sulfur and lithium. And what happens is it fails after 300 cycles, which is not good enough. You need 800 to 1,000. If you have 800 to 1,000, the battery will last 10, 12, maybe even 15 years. But this is not good enough. Um, but this failure is a known chemistry of the electrolyte and the metal. So if the barrier isn't working. So we're in the process of trying to figure out how to make high quality, cheap stuff. Uh, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, someone will figure out something else. Um, in the end, the dream would be you take CO2 and water and you put in very inexpensive energy. You're going uphill in energy uh, to create things like hydrogen steel as a start. But as I mentioned before, you can use this as a precursor to make any fuel you want. And so these are the uh, linear hydrocarbon chains we use in gasoline, diesel, jet fuel. Um, you also can use hydrogen and put it in uh, a liquid form. And you can turn it to ammonia under pressure and a little bit of cooling. Ammonia liquefies. Uh, you can turn it into methane and under pressure and lower temperature. You have LNG, uh, which we know how to ship around the world. And so why do you want to do this? It's because these tankers, LNG tankers, or in this case, a crude oil tanker, can ship halfway around the world, energy. And if you ask how much does it cost to ship and store oil, crude oil, halfway around the world, in terms of do dollars per gallon of gasoline, it's about two cents a gallon. So shipping is incidental. If it's a long-haul big super tanker, and so think of these uh, intercontinental, uh, these are uh, intercontinental, trans intercontinental transmission lines because they ship so easily. So you're not going to be stringing wires across the Pacific Ocean, but if you can make energy abundantly in a place that's got a lot of energy uh, and turn it into a liquid fuel, uh, liquid uh, green methane or hydrogen and ammonia, this is the way to go. Um, anyway, let me talk about something which is pressing that only is beginning in the last decade to get the attention it deserves, and it has to do with uh, food. And so we've been genetically modifying plants and animals for 4,000 years, and agriculture and meat production is massive geoengineering, really massive. Uh, let me give you an example. If you ask a question, where does all the biomass of the Earth come from, it turns out that most of it is in the form of plants. Uh, bacteria, big error bars, but bacteria is down here, archaea down here, fungi. And down here, this little corner is animals. So, but we're animals, so let's magnify this. And so of the animals, you have things like fish. Arthropods are like spiders. Believe me, I got a lot of spiders in my home. Uh, <laughs> livestock, humans, wild mammals. So look, look at here, wild mammals is this little sliver. 
livestock and humans are over here. Um, if you looked at this and said on a scale, and you look at all the biomass and humans and the animals we eat, all the other mammals of the world, which weighs more? Well, we weigh more. We're 95% of all the biomass. And oh, by the way, the animals we eat, the turnover is a cow is slaughtered in one and a half years. So we're actually bio-geoengineered the world uh, in incredibly profound ways. Um, we've geoengineered the land in the world in profound ways. This is from an IPCC report of uh, integrated cropland and non-irrigated cropland. This is intensive pastures, like pastures we use for grazing and everything. So as you go to the right, it's things. These are plantation forests, timber, uh, uh, you know, palm oil forests, things like that. And finally, there's unfettered stuff. If you look at this, uh, roughly half of non-frozen uh, ice-free land is under agricultural, uh, some sort of agricultural use. If you include the managed forests uh, for timber and other things, it's another 22%. So 72% of the land, uh, usable land, not the Antarctica and Greenland stuff, is, uh, is that. And so we will need a fourth agricultural revolution because about half the methane and three quarters of the nitrous oxide emission are from food production. Remember, food production and land use is about a quarter of all greenhouse gases. Okay, so what's the third agricultural revolution? Well, first came from the ability to make synthetic nitrogen-based fertilizers, awarded a Nobel Prize in 2018 to Fritz Haber for what's called the Haber-Bosch process. And then they realized, well, Bosch was part of the Haber-Bosch process, so they gave him another Nobel Prize for high temperature, high pressure catalysis, which is the original Haber-Bosch process. Uh, why is two Nobel Prizes? Because it helped feed the world. Um, what else was going on? A little bit later, it was realizing that if you took plants and bred them, you can increase the productivity. And so Norman Borlaug was one of the early pioneers that he was able to breed disease-resistant dwarf strains of wheat. Uh, this is his uh, strain of wheat with heavy wheat kernels, and this is the wild stuff. And so, and they would do well in fertilizer. And so the combination of bread plants, not, of all the major grains, wheat started with wheat and corn and rice and everything else, plus fertilizer, meant that when the population grew in the 1960s from 3 billion to 7.4 billion people, the land put under cereal production did not increase. The productivity increased threefold per acre. And, and so this really uh, was very significant. And as you've seen, you know, we've actually tapping out a lot significant part of the land already. So um, let's talk about the genetic modification because a lot of people are against it. So here's a little quiz. Uh, this is uh, corn, more corn, more corn. Which was the native corn? This stuff. Okay, not recognizable. If you look at the animals we eat, they've really changed a lot. Uh, if the full circle is the natural lifetime of cattle, pigs, chickens, and turkeys, uh, cattle are slaughtered 18 to 24 months, uh, pigs 22 to 24 weeks, and so on. 
average American pig uh, 280 pounds after 24 weeks, two years. It's very fast growth. Uh, and so these animals have been bred to grow very, very rapidly in a small fraction of the natural cycle. Uh, some of the turkeys we raise in the United States, uh, the United States like white meat, uh, they're so breast-heavy, they have trouble uh, making more turkeys, so they uh, are made sometimes with artificial insemination. And they don't look like wild turkeys. So anyway, if you look at the greenhouse gas uh, footprint, there's similar uh, tabulations for water uses, everything else. But if you just look at greenhouse gas emissions, it's led by beef, because beef are rumens, they have microbes in their gut that take the food from the cow or the beef. They're not symbiotic. They, have, they just steal their food, uh, and as waste product, they make methane, and it out it comes. And so uh, beef is very high on the list. Uh, look, if you look at pigs and poultries, uh, you're a small fraction of the uh, greenhouse gas impact of beef, but of course, if you eat uh, grains, wheat, rice, milk, things like that, soy, goes uh, much, much less, okay? So uh, this is a repeat. Uh, so this is the annual CO2 emissions in 2020 of the world. China has now more than doubled the United States. The United States is, is more than the EU plus Great Britain uh, combined. Uh, if beef and dairy cows were a country, they would be bigger than the United States or EU in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So it's significant. And um, now, there's lots of things you can do. Um, you can make um, beef-like products out of vegetable products. A friend of mine from Stanford uh, found a company called Impossible Foods, uh, and he's a, a biochemist, so it tastes like a hamburger because uh, he has yeast grow a hemoglobin-like molecule that tastes like hemoglobin. Um, uh, he actually did taste testing with animal hemoglobin versus soy hemoglobin versus that. And for some strange reason, people actually preferred the soy hemoglobin to the, but the soy is in the roots, and it was too expensive, so he said, I'll get the yeast to grow it. And then there's myosin, which is a component of muscle uh, that gives it some of the juicy, flowing nature. So it's real chemistry. It's now more expensive than beef, uh, but only because of scale, uh, not because of any fundamental thing. Uh, USDA just approved uh, last month uh, cell-grown chicken. So these are cells, and then you put on the cells the nutrients, which you can actually get. The, now, the nutrients are nu originally come from animals, so that's no good. Uh, you want to get away from animals completely, but a lot of the nutrients you can actually make by yeast as well. So you drip the nutrients on in a big bioreactor, and out comes chicken. And, and it turns out that uh, it, uh, you, in blind tasting tests, you can't tell the difference. Um, this is just published. This is Wagyu steak, because you can sell Wagyu steak at $200 a pound. Uh, this is cell-grown, and it's 3D printed. And so <laughs> uh, this material is now having the texture of meat. Okay, um, but nevertheless, uh, you're much better off eating less meat and more uh, uh, vegetable-based products. 
And the issue is, even if you do that, this is where the nitrous oxide comes from. Nitrous oxide is a very, very bad greenhouse gas. Um, if you look at it, it's uh, about 300 times worse than carbon dioxide in terms of its ability to trap heat, and it's very stable for over 100 years. Uh, carbon dioxide's gone in 20 years or less. So, uh, methane, rather. And it, it, methane becomes a carbon dioxide which hang, hangs around for thousands of years, but uh, the, um, uh, that's why we don't want leaky hydrogen because we want to get rid of, we want natural process to oxidize methane. But this stuff doesn't happen. It's much worse. So even though you're only a, a fraction of a part per million uh, um, concentrated in M2O, it is a significant greenhouse gas, and it comes from fertilizer. Uh, when you fertilize plants, the plant only pick up a small fraction, less than half of the fertilizer gets used by the plant. Those, those nitrogen compounds get turned in by microbes into N2O, and it just comes out of the soil. If it stayed in the water and was in water runoff, we can recapture it. But a lot of it just comes out of the ground. And so in the end, remember how important fertilizer was to feed 8 billion people. So you need, you can't go organic. That's for rich people in rich countries. So you need high productivity. Um, and so we look at synthetic biology as a possible way out. And what synthetic biology does is it puts in entire metabolic pathways into organisms. And one organism, which was synthetically altered so it could enter into symbiotic relationships with corn, right at the boundary of the roots and the soil in the rhyosphere. And it takes the nitrogen that comes naturally in the soil from the atmosphere and turns it into food. The plant says, feed me, I'm hungry, it feeds it. And, and it does something that makes these microbes happy. And so this has been put into production now for a couple of years. It works, but it only works, it only eliminates half the fertilizer of corn. And the farmers want to get rid of, they want one or the other and it doesn't work in all soils. And so you really have to uh, uh, do better. Um, what's the hang up? I, I was on the board of this company that helped Pivot Bio do this synthetic modification, but you alter one gene at a time and it takes many, many years to get these. And so one of the bottlenecks is if you can put in 10 genes at once, you, you can type in what you want if you can stick them into uh, cells, you can do all these experiments in parallel, and then, and then you combinatorially get better progress. And so in my lab, I figured out how we can get maybe um, 10, maybe 20 genes at once uh, uh, in a, a way that could be massively parallel and cheap. Uh, so hopefully, we'll publish this in the next five months. So if this happens, then synthetic biologists can go much faster and you can develop these things. But I think this is important because you need a substitute for fertilizer. Uh, not only nitrogen-based, but the phosphate itself, uh, which is mined. Uh, the phosphate prices went up because who is the biggest supplier of phosphate? Russia. And it's mined. And phosphate and nitrogen-based fertilizer uh, create um, uh, cyanobacteria, which are toxic. Uh, really toxic, uh, this green-blue stuff. Um, 
And so you need to get rid of these things uh, and still maintain the productivity. Okay, I'm nearing the end. Um, if we go to 550, 600 parts per million, we're gonna need carbon capture from all the point sources, but also from the atmosphere. There are many, many ways of doing this. Uh, the cost now, the cost goal has got to get less than $50 a ton of CO2 from point sources like cement plants or go to green cement that actually uh, captures carbon dioxide. There are companies beginning to form on this uh, and you've got to get air capture below uh, $100 a ton if you're ever going to use it because this is the cost um, to cover the risk and everything uh, uh, if, if price is $150 a ton. So, uh, so anyway, the exciting thing about this is if you look at the physics and chemistry of carbon capture, there's one physics thing that's irrefutable. When you go from four or five or 600 parts per million to 95%, you're, you're changing the entropy, you're concentrating that. So that is something you can't cheat. Uh, the entropy cost of concentrating carbon dioxide is there unavoidable. The energy cost is not unavoidable. And so we're thinking around with a method that seems to reduce the energy cost of capture and then uh, releasing CO2 at one-tenth the energy of aiming processes. If this turns out to work and, and it's scalable, then the energy uh, uh, thing goes away. Um, however, the cheapest form of carbon capture is photosynthesis, it's solar powered. If you look at all the crops and the grasses we cultivate for animals, it's big error bar estimates, somewhere between 10 and 18 gigatons a year. Global human emissions, including the um, NOx and methane, is 52 gigatons a year, roughly 40, 41 gigatons of carbon dioxide. So this is significant. Uh, so if you take biomass from crop residues and timber residues, and compact it and keep the microbes and the fungi from turning into carbon dioxide and methane, you can use a bulldozer and put it on the ground. How much are we talking about? It's a lot. It's equivalent to landfill waste from cities, <laughs> which is also a lot, <laughs> but it's not crazy a lot if you can compact it to the form of pellets. The big thing is keeping the microbes from getting at, because if they get at it, they can form carbon dioxide and methane. And so Breakthrough Energy Ventures is scheming to figure out how to do this, how do you get sterile. And then a friend of mine um, who's a physicist, an EE guy, says, I got a better idea. Why don't you just put the crop residues after you compact it into pellety form uh, with a lot of salt. And then you put it in a baggie that's non-biodegradable. We know how to make really non-biodegradable plastic. By the way, you don't want to make biodegradable plastic. Uh, no, because you're getting carbon out of the ground and you're turning to carbon dioxide and methane. <laughs> you just don't want to use as much plastic. Uh, and so um, going back to this, um, uh, so that's great. Um, he borrowed a little trick from the Romans. If they conquer something and they leave something and they still put salt in the ground, you can't grow anything on it. So the only downside is if salt ever leaks out next to your farm, it's bad news. Uh, so we're going to see what's going to happen. But, but the fact that if you can make the microbes, keep microbes off of this stuff for hundreds or thousands of years, 
it's very cheap carbon capture. And it's bioresidues. Uh, or you can grow uh, uh, plants for carbon capture. Uh, you can get five times more, but it's mostly bioresidues. Now, since we're talking about sustainability, the, the giant gorilla in the room is population growth. Uh, in 2011, it was projected it was going to take 13 years to add another billion population to 8 billion. Uh, in 2011, that was the projection. They were wrong. Uh, it, it was uh, two years ahead of schedule. Uh, and so it goes. So, so as long as the population is increasing, you're going to have more demand on resources, more energy, more food, more everything. It is a golden rule among economists that increased economic prosperity is based on having more young people take, supporting a smaller aging population. Where I come from, this is called the Ponzi scheme. <laughs> <laughs> it's a form of fraud that lures investors and pays profits to early investors with funds from more recent investors. And as long as you have more young people, it's OK. So what happens when you have fewer young people or a stable population? Well. Uh, you've heard this. They said, we need, we're running out of workers. What's going on? Uh, and now um, you can look at what the population forecasts are. Uh, gray is history, and on the right-hand side is projections, and Japan is leading the way. They've been in negative population growth uh, for quite a while, since the early 1990s. And so what are they doing? Uh, their economy is still pretty strong, and so and how are they dealing with this? And there is a natural way out, and the natural way out is we've gotten so good at producing crops with far few farmers, producing stuff like cars and washing machines and everything else because of automation. In fact, if you don't automate, you're going to be hosed. And so what's happening is workers are looking around for real jobs that, you know, like electrician jobs and plumber jobs, because it's harder to get a robot to crawl under your sink and figure out what's going wrong, okay? Uh, very high-paying jobs. <laughs> and so robots can do a lot of things, and Japan is beginning to use robots to help older people get up out of their chair and go to the bathroom. Uh, they can get a robot to walk them around uh, the block, because if you start wa stop walking, you age very quickly. And most people don't want to go around the block using a, a walker. Uh, but they don't mind uh, holding onto the arm of a child or a grandchild or a friend. And they also can be good companions. So, so robots could be a way out of this dilemma. And it's necessarily true because you don't have big families anymore, and so the worry is who's going to take care of you when you get old, when you have zero, one, or two kids, and they're scattered around the world. And so this idea of mechanization uh, now with uh, artificial intelligence robots is actually a way of breaking out of this pyramid scheme in a natural way. But in order to do this, you also have to redefine wealth. Wealth is defined by GDP per capita. And GDP means you make stuff. If you build a building and tear it down 50 years and build another building, that's good for the GDP. If you, you know, have two cars instead of one car, if you have two houses instead of one house, all good for the GDP. And if there's a disaster and you have to do disaster relief and build up something, guess what? The GDP increases. 
So what's wrong with a few disasters? Not, I mean, this is crazy, okay? It, because it's tied to stuff. It is also tied to jobs, but you can have uh, meaningful jobs. But what do you care about in your lives, really? Well, you certainly want enough money and food and things like that so you can live a comfortable life, but you want to feel that your family and your neighborhood's safe, your country's not uh, risk safe from hostile takeover, you want to be healthy in, through old age and emotionally connected. And so I'll leave you with this quote from Robert Kennedy, senior, uh, not the crazy one. <laughs> So Robert Kennedy, 1968, it was a month before he was assassinated, he said, the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short except that which makes life worthwhile. Thank you. That's about as broad-ranging a talk as I think I've ever seen here. And one of the things is you're an incredible representative for your university, because as you're talking and you're going from topic to topic, I'm just thinking of all the research that happens here and all the people in the room, from Carbon on the one hand to the well-being economy, which is just announced recently, and we're, we've got folks in the room working on it. I mean, all across the board, um, all of those. Uh, are things that we are doing here as well. So we've got um, two folks to respond. Um, these are two of our uh, collaborators, or re representing two of our collaborators who have helped us put this event together. Um, I will introduce them both first, um, and then they'll come up and speak, uh, and then we'll close down. So first, um, from the Net Zero Initiative, Professor uh, Deanna D'Alessandro. Uh, she's a chemist and professor in the schools of chemical and biomolecular engineering and chemistry here at the university. She is the director of the Net Zero Initiative. Uh, that team aims to help government and industry and communities manufacture, deploy, and adopt cost-effective low emissions technologies at scale. And then Meg McDonald, um, who's here from the US Studies Center, where she's a non-resident fellow. She's got more than 30 years of experience in the public and private sectors in Australia and internationally, including the US. She served as a senior Australian diplomat in Geneva as Deputy Chief of Mission, the Australian Embassy in Washington, D.C., and as Australia's Ambassador for the Environment. So we'll have each um, of these women come and give just a brief uh, response, uh, and we'll start with Sienna. So I think we can all agree that we've been absolutely privileged to hear a very thought-provoking and powerful talk. So a heartfelt thanks, Professor Chu, uh, for joining us today and shedding light on the path to a sustainable future. While our nations have set ambitious tasks for our transformation, the challenge lies in determining the how on this unprecedented timescale. And some liken this to trying to fly a plane while building it at exactly the same time. So as Professor Chu has shared, there is no silver bullet here. And instead, we actually need a portfolio of solutions. And today we've heard some of these crucial areas to guide our sustainable journey. And I thought I'd just highlight some of those areas that Professor Chu has uh, shared with us. So first and foremost, we must urgently transition to renewable energy sources while addressing the challenges of storage, transmission and distribution. Solutions like standby energy generation, uh, pump water storage and chemical batteries hold a lot of promise here. 
in Australia. I think we're going to have to grapple with the topic of nuclear reactors, fission, fusion, which remains controversial. And we must also address the need for critical minerals, as is evident in the recent compact between the US and Australia, to coordinate policies and investment in the area. Secondly, sustainable development calls for a shift in how we produce and consume, emphasising a circular economy, focusing on reusing and repairing rather than simply recycling. So really it's essential that we minimise our ecological footprint and protect natural resources and biodiversity. Thirdly, we must promote uh, sustainable agriculture practices, including reducing greenhouse gas emissions from farming and implementing carbon capture. And of course, that equitable access to nutritious food must be ensured while safeguarding ecosystems from the adverse effects of industrialised farming. Lastly, we have to confront this challenge of an increase in global population projected to reach around 11 billion by 2100. And we grapple then with the risks, but also these enormous opportunities presented by artificial intelligence. And for example, as Professor Chu shared, the role of AI in supporting our older population uh, demands really careful consideration. So today, I think collectively we're reminded of our responsibility and the call to action. Each one of us in this room has a role to play whether through research and innovation, educating our future workforce, implementing and integrating solutions, crafting responsible policies or co-designing solutions with our local communities to ensure a just transition. International cooperation, sharing of best practices and resources is vital for a better future within the bounds of our planet's resources. We must also, as Prof Professor Chu mentioned, redefine what we think wealth, re wealth really is, basing it on well-being rather than consumption and production, as exemplified by some of our Pacific neighbours like New Zealand. So in closing, our heartfelt professor, uh, thanks Professor Chu, um, I think you've really inspired us today. I would also like to add my profound thanks to you as well. One of the things that strikes me about the debate in Australia is that it does tend to narrow down uh, quite a lot. And I think you've done a lot for everybody here in the room to lift our vision and to really um, be thinking about solutions as well as the challenges. So I've ditched all my notes and I'm just going to pick up a couple of points that I think your um, presentation really raised um, in my mind, drawing on the fact that what I do most of my t time these days is work w w in the rather constrained uh, realms of government and the realities of what is government policy and government, the capabilities of governments, which I know that you are um, uh, all too familiar with. Um, and it's, that's something that's felt in the United States, it's felt in Australia, it's felt at all levels of government. Um, the aspiration and the means and the, and the um, bringing everyone with us. So um, where I re really um, come to is that we are at a unique moment, particularly here in Australia, where we have all levels of government um, aligned You've mentioned the flip-flopping previously, Professor Chu, and we, we, we had a very long flip-flop of 10 years where nothing was happening at the federal government level. There is now a race on 
we can use that term these days, there is a race to actually get as much policy and as much um, uh, of this transition underway as possible. But there are lots and lots of head headwinds in front of us in being able to achieve that. And they're not headwinds that we're there necessarily from resistance. It's just the sheer inertia and the complexity of tackling a lot of these different challenges all at once and making sure that we are able to do so in a way which um, doesn't run the system too fast, doesn't run the system too, uh, too thinly. And at the base of that is, do, is the population ready for the change that is necessary and is headed for them? And are we equipped, all equipped enough to do that? And I think that's the big challenge for everybody in government, in education here at the university, and, um, but also more broadly out there in society and all the institutions that we belong to. The three areas that I think are um, really worth thinking about is the innovation that is going to be necessary, the innovation of not only the science and trying uh, out new solutions, but how, when we get those solutions, do we get them out there in place as rapidly as we can and at the scale that is necessary, and avoiding a lot of the uh, negatives and the um, downsides of some of those technologies. So we get to choose the ones which actually have the, the least uh, downside for us. Because no choice is going to be black and white, it's all go, go a matter of balance. And so that's a big challenge for all of our institutions. How do we actually make that happen faster? It's also a matter of galvanising the private sector and particularly the financing sector to be able to pour the amount of money into and bring the amount of investment into these sectors to make this happen fast enough. And there, there's a lot that governments can do and uh, should be doing in working to de-risk a lot of that for the private sector to be able to bring them in. I also think that the... the um, wider um, acknowledgement of the cost of climate change, particularly in the private sector, through changes to accounting systems, for instance, is going to drive a lot of this faster than even government can do. And I, so I think that there's a big shift in the wheel of the, the private sector that is going to be necessary to make it happen. And the third thing, I think, which again, all sections of society have really got to think about is equity and social licence for this change um, because we've got to think about the equity for the parts of our society that are not going to have the access, the, the ability to access particular technologies as fast as, um, uh, is, as is necessary. And that not only uh, is in our own societies but is actually in other parts of the world as well, um, particularly in uh, some of the um, more sm smaller and uh, more vulnerable states. And so the other areas of technology that we didn't talk about but I think we really do need to focus on just as fast is in the adaptation and resilience part of the agenda because we're going to need that at the same time that we're actually applying all of the mitigation technologies. And so, uh, you, I mean, you mentioned some of the, the uh, things like the, the burying of um, the, the uh, green, uh, not waste, but I suppose it is waste, but um, 
we need a whole lot of science in those areas at the same time and I, I, I feel a great urgency that um, it's science and a lot of our IT and communication skills around being able to make sure that our populations are able to adapt and deal with the um, hopefully two degree world that we, we, that we should be able to limit ourselves to. Thank you.